Chapter Two of the Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two. The wheelbarrow appeared first, and then the man who was pushing it before him. He limped so that even the squeaking of the wheel sounded uneven and halting. The front view of the man showed a broad-shouldered body and a small weather-beaten face surrounded by a quantity of black hair and beard, and surmounted by a red-pointed woolen cap with its tassel dangling down over one ear. Some little boys burning seaweed on the beach could see him from behind, however, and he had legs as well, one shorter than the other. He seemed to be sailing in a rough sea, and if it had only been winter, the broad back of his waistcoat would have made a splendid target for a snowball, or a still broader and better would have been the seat of his trousers with his knife in its sheath hanging from its waistband. It was all awry, and the patches, one above another, put one in mind of little fields. The trousers' legs lay in folds like a concertina and hung down over the tabs of his high boots. Hello, Jacob. Hello, damn it all with a limp. Be quiet, boys, was all he said, and passed on with his barrow. It was, in fact, Jacob, and the nickname had been given him because he so often said, damn it all, when he swore, and when he said it he generally swung out his short leg. But the little boys looked up to him because he was the head man on the big Lofoten boat, the Sea Flower, and had gone through so much both on the sea and on land that it was a miracle that he still lived. When a lad had taken hire with him for a Lofoten voyage, the lad's mother would cross herself in horror at the thought that he could go with Jakob. Jakob was a great seaman, a great fisherman and a great drinker, and while the other seamen lived in the grey cottages around the bay, and had wife and children to provide for, he was a happy bachelor of sixty, and his boat was wife and house and home to him. It is true that the sea-flower lay unrigged high up on the beach half the year, but even then Jakob lived on board, in the poop-cabin, and while the others toiled at the herring-fisheries in the summer and autumn, he led an easy life from the end of one winter's fishing to the beginning of the next and it is wonderful how quickly the days pass when you have learned how to sleep at any hour of the twenty-four. When smoke was seen rising from the stove-pipe through the roof of the poop-cabin, you knew that Jacob was awake, and if you wanted a dram you had only to climb on board. He no longer had any relatives in the district, but when he set out to sea he always waved a southwester vigorously, although there was no one on shore to say good-bye to him and wish him a prosperous voyage. And in the spring he joined the others and sailed the hundreds of miles southward again, although no one among the many standing on the beach was there to welcome him home. But what did that matter? They got on well here, both the sea-flower and Jacob and to-day he came limping along in the sunshine with his wheelbarrow, and was not even drunk. Over the sunlit surface of the sea the wind was flinging patches of ruffled blue. All round the bay between the two headlands stood grey boat-houses, and out of the back of two or three of these stuck the pitch-brown forepart of a Lofoten boat, 
as if to watch for the coming of the season when it would go out and be rigged again the sea-flower however lay alone on the beach with no boat-house to cover her as homeless as jacob himself her long hull with a white stripe along the sheer strake and the black stem and stern standing proudly erect herring-nets hung drying beside the boat-houses for there may be a herring or two to be caught by those who have the mind and the patience to catch them but jacob with his wheelbarrow held such fishing in contempt suddenly the noise of the wheel ceased jacob had stopped and was gazing out over the bay a boat was sailing up past the southern headland she was certainly no herring boat nor yet a ten-oared or a four-oared boat neither was she a cargo boat why damn it all if she wasn't a lofoten boat such an object on the sea at this season of the year was like lightning in a cloudless sky it was incredible and yet there she was and had a six-oared boat without a sail in tow as well jacob put down the wheelbarrow and stood staring without even noticing that there was someone behind him who was also standing staring it was eleseus hulla a broad-shouldered brown-bearded man with prominent cheekbones and he stared so intently that a row of white teeth became visible from sheer wonderment can you understand that he said burying his hands deep in his trousers pockets his blouse was of white sailcloth and his homespun trousers hung down over his boots just as jacob's did the old man turned his head removed his quid from his mouth to his waistcoat pocket and expectorated no he said can you it must be a stranger perhaps but it seems to me that i know the six-oared boat the windows in the cottages had become full of faces and a few people came out in order to get a better view on the miran land two fair-haired boys were taking up potatoes they were Lars and his brother Ulf, and both stood leaning on their forks and gazing i'm going down to the water said Ulf. you'll stay where you are said Lars, for he was sixteen and the other only fourteen and what would the world be like if the younger brother were not to obey the elder the brothers were very dissimilar in appearance Lars being bow-legged and round-shouldered and with a quick temper while Ulf was big and broad and had his mother's short upper lip so that his mouth was always open he's coming into our boat-house cried Ulf, dropping his fork and setting off at a run the next moment his brother ran past him it's father he shouted you'll see he's bought a lofoten boat it was christav and miran and this was a great day for him for many years he had secretly longed for it and at last it had come and he stood there the headman on his own lofoten boat it was altogether incredible but the tiller that he swung backward and forward over his head was his the hull rigging grapnel and rope everything on board belonged to him the sturdy fisherman was still in the prime of his life his red close-clipped beard and whiskers surrounded a strong face and the hair beneath the black southwester was fair and curly 
it was not unusual when he walked up the aisle in church for great ladies to put up their eyeglasses in order to have a better look at him but the fisherman with a wife and six children has other things to think about than being handsome the purchase of the boat had come about in a strange manner he was fishing the fjords for herring in his six-oared boat with Cornelis Gumon, and one day went over to an auction at which he had heard a large boat was to be sold he had no thought of any purchase but there were crowds of people on the beach and the auctioneer was shouting but not a soul attempted to bid and there lay the boat christavid began to walk around her he thought he ought to be able to judge of the capabilities of such a boat and she was apparently as good as new well built with extra fine lines a regular sea-plough to cleave the billows and forge ahead with what could it be that kept people from bidding for such a fine boat it happened that there was a man there who could not hold his tongue and he let out the fact that the boat had capsized three winters in succession on the lofoten sea and now had the reputation of being a regular coffin in which no one would sign on she was moreover a slow sailor and dropped behind the others in the voyages north and south so that no headman with any self-respect would think of bidding for such a tub at this christaver took courage and bid a mere nothing and he turned cold for a moment when the boat was knocked down to him and he a poor man stood there the sole owner of a lufoten boat do you want to kill yourself said one man with a smile and every one in the crowd gazed at him apparently with the same thought a headman from a coast district cannot resist the temptation to tease the dwellers in the inland fjord districts who like to think themselves seamen so he answered that the boat was good enough but that much depended upon the fellows that were on board her whereupon the men began to close in upon him and ask him what he meant by that a spirit of mischief impelled him to reply that the boat was far too good for such inlanders who were good enough to dig potatoes up out of the ground but would never make seamen i'll show you that i can make her go he added ay and make her stand up too but if he had not taken his departure then it is probable that blows would have been exchanged now he was coming home he had been a headman for many years so that was not what made the difference but he had been only part owner in the boat and what is the good of a successful fishing season once in a way when the proceeds have to be divided between six men christavid had sons who were growing up and his head was full of plans and if the day ever came when he could man his own boat from his own household a single good fishing year might make him a wealthy man he owed for the boat that is true and would have to go still deeper into debt if he alone had to equip six men for a winter's fishing it was foolhardy but he had taken the plunge and what was done could not be undone lower away he shouted to Cornelis, who was standing forward, and the topsail bellied out, sank together, and glided down, followed by the mainsail. The grapnel clanked over the side, and the big boat swung round to the hawser, and lay along the wind. The beach was black with people, 
and when the six-oared boat had also been moored and the skiff came shoreward but was still at some distance it was Lars who shouted who does the luffelton boat belong to father christopher made no answer his face was all smiles when he stepped ashore and two of his younger children seized each a hand and he stooped down and talked to them although every one all around him was trying to speak to him then he went slowly up the beach with the children nodding affirmatively in all directions yes the boat was his jacob alone held aloof and would not condescend to be curious he looked grim and tried to find out whether the boat was a thing to go to sea with we'll be able to race one another now said christopher as he passed him down through the field a woman was coming toward him with hesitating steps carrying a baby on her arm it was maria welcome home she said with an attempt at a smile but the eyes in the pale face had a frightened look christopher walked slowly beside her only asking if everything was going on all right he thought there was no one like her and that she had a perfect right to her own thoughts and opinions two boys had already rowed out to the luffelton boat and they were Lars and olaf cornelis gumon who had been with christopher on this herring fishing expedition was a bachelor of thirty he was little and pale and had it not been for his fair moustache would have been taken for a mere boy he was now walking up from the shore into the mountains singing as he went swaying from side to side and carrying his chest on his shoulder his home was on a little mountain farm where there lived only his half-blind father of seventy and a little sister who was not yet confirmed if only he had been able to cultivate the land at home he might have made a large farm of it but that needed a little money and if he did not earn that on the sea he would like to know where it was to come from he was unsuccessful however year after year so there was nothing but toil when he was away and poverty at home but still cornelis sang the priest never failed to put him down as father in every case of doubtful paternity in the parish and though it might be amusing for the priest it became by degrees a heavy tax on cornelis but still he was as happy as a king and was always singing the gayest of songs there was much talk in the cottage at Miran all that evening, first about the boat and father, and then about father and the boat. Even the little ten-year-old Tosten had been on board, and he determined that his own little boat, which was as large as a wooden shoe, should be called the seal after the big boat. Lars had extracted from his father the promise that next winter he should at last be allowed to go with him and this caused him to assume a still more authoritative manner toward Ulf, for now he was almost a Lofoten fisherman. There was not much sleep for any one in the little cottage that night. There was only one person who had not yet said anything, and that was Maria, and she lay awake beside Christopher, but pretended to be asleep. He himself was thinking of the guarantors he would have to find for his bank loan, and of all that he must try to obtain on credit from the tradesmen here and in town. To fit out six men is no small matter, 
and if then it was a black year with the fishing, it would be pretty well the ruin of him and his. And then, about the seal, the thought that he had acted like a fool kept flitting through his mind. If the boat had capsized with others, why should he be better able to keep her right way up? Was not that merely a boast? And would he dare to take his eldest boy with him in such a venture? He smiled at this, however. Boats are like horses and women. They have their whims and caprices, and the question is whether you are man enough to overcome them. There was nothing wrong with the boat, nothing at any rate that could not be put right. And he repeated, I'll show you that I can make her go, aye, and make her stand up too. But what would Maria have said if she knew? Lars slept in the attic with Olaf, and lay thinking until he fell asleep, and then dreamed until he started up wide awake again. Olaf slept on undisturbed, for he knew no better, but it was not easy to be Lars. He felt drawn in many different directions. At school he had been a regular clipper, and it was jolly to learn things, there was no doubt about that. Both the schoolmaster and the priest had advised him to try to borrow money and take a teacher's course. It was a great temptation. He would like to rise and get on in the world, and whenever he and his mother were alone together, she always impressed upon him that that was the way he ought to take. But his father was a Lofoten fisherman and a headman, and he would like to be like his father, too. He had never forgotten what the pastor's wife had once said to him. I know now what Olaf Tryggvason looked like. He was just exactly like your father. He remembered now, too, what the schoolmaster had once said about the Stadsland Lofoten boat. She was the descendant of the old dragon-proud vessels which hundreds and hundreds of years ago bore the Vikings to their discoveries and battles all over the world, and the fishermen of today still sails in the same kind of boat the hundreds of miles northward to battle with wind and wave. Lars would certainly be just what his father was. He slept and dreamed that he was fighting in the battle of Svolder. His father was Olav Tryggvason, and he himself was Einar Tambarsalver. He drew a bow with a stronger hand than others, and his bow broke. "'What was that that broke with such clangor?' asked Olaf. "'Norway from thy grasp, O king,' said Lars, and he started up in bed, and there lay that duffer Olaf fast asleep. The next day, while they were at dinner, Olaf said, "'But the boat hasn't got the pennon, father. Aren't you going to have a red pennon on the masthead like all the others?' His father replied that he had thought of speaking to Karin Seamstress about it. Maria looked up at him. Oh, you might entrust that little piece of work to me, she said, her face brightening. Well, there's no one who could do it better, he said. Maria had a piece of red material that was just large enough to make a petticoat for herself and the same day she took it out and cut off a piece about a foot wide and a good two feet in length for the pennon, and then hunted up some bright blue woolen yarn, and set to work to embroider a K and an M 
upon the red ground. She worked away with a happy face, because they were his initials, but at the same time she felt inclined to cry. One day she dressed herself in her best, and telling the children to be good, set off up the road with a rope in her hand. She was going up to her brother's, in the valley, to fetch home a cow that had been up there on the mountain pastures all the summer. Her mother had given her the cow as a calf, and every spring since she had taken it up there for the summer, and every autumn brought it down again. It was a strange expedition both for the cow and for her. When they set out from the little farm by the sea, Russia would turn her handsome white head over her shoulder to look back at the houses and low. She had stood in the cowshed there all the winter, and it was her home. Maria thought of the children, so it was not easy for her to leave it either. When they had come farther in toward the valley, however, Russia began to scent the mountain air that she knew from the long, bright days on the setter pastures, and her step grew lighter, she whimpered and quickened her pace. Maria, too, forgot the children and the cottage by the sea and walked more easily, for she was on her way home to the only place in the world where she was happy. On this occasion her mind was full of all the bustle down by the sea, but when she had passed Lindegord, and the valley lay before her in the hot autumn sunshine, with its farms and woods, where bright patches of scarlet leafage stood out here and there from the deep green of the fir-clad hills, she breathed more freely, and her step grew lighter. Farther on the valley began to close in and become more sheltered. The river gleamed far below, and the hills came nearer, as if to welcome her and she sat down on a stone and wiped the tears from her eyes. By evening she had reached the little farm where her mother lived as a pensioner of her brother. The small sun-browned buildings were surrounded with green and yellow fields, the whole forming a picture in its setting of green forest. Maria could hardly imagine anything more beautiful. The night was frosty, with bright moonlight, and she lay listening to the wind in the trees, but heard no sound of waves, and she folded her hands and prayed, for here she felt there was a good God. Down by the sea he stood only for the day of judgment, storm, misfortune, and terror, and she did not pray there. She set her teeth and defied him. The next day they went down together, she and the big red cow with the white head and beautiful horns tipped with brass buttons. The cow turned and lowed her farewell, and was answered by her comrades in the cowhouse. Maria too walked sadly, for she was turning her back on home. As she went down the valley, her eyes rested lovingly on the mountains and wooded slopes. Then came the wide countryside, where it was still beautiful. Then Lindegord and beyond that were the peat-bogs and the sea. But here Russia raised her head, and sniffed the well-known air of her little winter home by the sea, and instantly her step grew lighter. Maria thought of the children, and wondered if anything had happened to them while she was away, and she quickened her pace, as the cow had done. And so they reached the field, the cow lowing softly, and Maria calling to the children to ask if all had gone well at home. 
End of chapter 2